Let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill the hearts of your people and kindle within us the fire of your love. And may my words and our hearts together glorify you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Yesterday I had the great opportunity to attend the installation of a dear friend of mine and a colleague in the Episcopal Church. Rector Christopher Thomas was installed as the 11th pastor. Oh, I take that back. That was the bishop who had 11 years. Uh, he, the 7th pastor of St. Thomas uh, of the Apostle Church in Dallas. It was a glorious service, as you can only imagine. You know, those Episcopalians, they know how to do it upright. <laughs> well, it was just beautiful. And the bishop, Bishop Wayne Smith, who is Chris Thomas's bishop, the bishop of the Dallas Diocese was there as well because St. Thomas the Apostle is a church in the Dallas Diocese, but because Christopher is an openly gay man, uh, they imported the bishop, the good bishop from the Missouri Diocese, who is retired there now and is serving uh, as an interim in the South Ohio uh, diocese. Anyway, it was great. It was a great day. It was a joyous day. It was a beautiful day. Uh, Bishop Wayne Smith preached. He told the story of the Diocese of Missouri having a mission outreach to a town in, in the Sudan, or I should say in Sudan. The town is Louis, Sudan, L-U-I, Louis, and um, after a bit of time and after relationships had developed, the priest there asked the bishop if they could teach them about stewardship. Now, what you have to remember is that in Louis, Sudan, uh, the people are all subsistence farmers, and there is no formal education. And so the diocese went in and helped educate people. They, they chose people based on their character, their uh, commitment to the church, uh, their desire to serve the church and so they brought these people together and taught them uh, how to be priests and one of the things the people asked were well can you tell us about stewardship so they planned this stewardship program and you know like all good western protestant christians they talked about uh, proportional giving you know you give proportionally according to what you have well it made no sense to them. None of them had any money. I mean, they were subsistence farmers. And so they had to regroup and talk about how do we talk to this community about stewardship. And so they began to talk about sacrifice. That stewardship was really about making sacrifice. Sacrifice for others, sacrifice for the church, sacrifice for God. Living sacrifices is the language that's used in the liturgy. Let us become a living sacrifice. And, and what that does is it then frames all our giving under the cross. 
because Jesus is our example that in his sacrifice on the cross, he was faithful to God and loved God and the world with his life and that we are invited to do the same. And you know what? They got that. These subsistent farmers who were working the land to keep their families alive, they got this image. They understood it. And he said that their joy in this learning was beyond measure. They were so grateful to have been taught about sacrificial giving. And that means not giving dourly or being angry. It means joyously living into agape love, a common love for all people. And that that really is what sacrifice is about. It's about this idea of the common good for all people, for all God's children, and that it should be done with joy. Well, the good bishop talked about how all the people in the church are priests, that it wasn't just Chris who needed to sacrifice, that it was going to be everybody would need to become the priesthood of all believers, living witnesses, making sacrificial their lives for the church and for the people and for the world. He said it was among the most powerful moments he has ever experienced with this group of people um, to come to understand what it means to take up your cross and follow. It was a powerful, powerful moment for me too as he told the story. And of course, that sacrificial living is revealed in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, right? It is the way of the cross that is spoken of so often in scripture, especially the gospels. It is about agape love, not about love that is emotion, not about love that's friendship, not about love that is sexual passion, but about sacrificial agape love, a love that transcends all the other types of love we encounter. The willing to make, willingness to make that kind of love a priority in your living, love that puts the welfare of others, those you have contact with, as your priority, because they are children of God, just as you are. Well, here in our gospel story, and, and you may think this is a little odd that we've been in these resurrection appearances and now we're dropping back into John to talk, have Jesus giving his farewell story, right? His farewell to these disciples. But Jesus is um, teaching them what they're going to encounter um, once he is gone. And here... In this story, we get a sense that there is tension here and stress because you heard the first words. After Judas was gone, you know where we are then in the story. This is just prior to Jesus being turned over and betrayed and turned over to the authorities. But look at what happens. Jesus does not dwell on himself. Doesn't dwell on what's getting ready to happen to him. I mean, he's told them. He's told them several times throughout the, the gospel and then 
in these last in this last night together he's he's told them he's going to be betrayed and he will die and rise again on the third day they never hear the third day part <laughs> but at this point Jesus doesn't talk about himself he talks about them he talks about us on this last night of his earthly life he is focused on them and wants to do all he can to ensure that they get it. That it's an extraordinary pastoral moment as he turns his focus away from Judas, who he could have been thinking a lot about at that point, and turns toward them. So the New Testament reading for today that we heard in the that we heard aspects of in our first lesson is from the book of the Revelation of John. Now, you may think that these two stories don't link together, but they do. Now, you know the book of the Revelation of John is considered a... a okay, give me apocalyptic literature. That was crazy. Apocalyptic literature. And don't let that apocalypse word scare you, although it just did me. Uh, don't let it scare you, as it really just means unveiling or uncovering, the pulling back of the curtain. I mean, you know, it's that place in The Wizard of Oz when Toto goes up and pulls back the curtain, and we get to see the real Oz. Well, I mean, this is what Revelation is about. It's about the curtain being pulled back and the scales falling from our eyes and, and us being able to see something new. And you heard in that reading and in this scripture in Revelation that God is making all things new. Amen. Well, think of it this way. We are living in an apocalyptic time, aren't we? And what that means for us is that we are in the midst of a time of unveiling of God pulling back the curtain so we can see more clearly. And what we're seeing can be painful, and it can be difficult, and it can be frightening, but God is giving us a chance to see things in a new way. The letter of the Revelation of John can be quite confusing and very frightening. It is not really about predicting the end of the world. Biblical scholars tell us it is really a pastoral letter of great comfort to the persecuted church in John's time. It is filled with metaphors and dramatic language that are designed to explain things that are hard to understand. Diana Butler Bass tells us that the book of Revelation is built around a central metaphor, and that's this. The Roman Empire, like every empire, is a murderous beast. According to the writer, the empire destroys everything, takes everything, controls everything. The empire was born of violence. All it knows is war. Its mark is on all its subjects is death. The waters of the world are flooded with weeping and tears. The seas are flooded across the earth with great sorrow. Humankind mourns under its sway and laments the life we experience in empire's tears are the very character of empire, and that is true, an utterly honest assessment of empire 
Butler Bass says. The problem is, is that a fundamentalist, literalist Christian interpretation of the reign of Christ, as described in Revelation, is also a description of empire. In other words, Jesus Christ is coming and he's going to get his and destroy the people of Rome and all the people of empire. Of course, in that interpretation of the metaphor, Jesus Christ and his angelic army become the empire themselves, don't they? And that remains the challenge for us. Today, among all the challenges we face, how to not become empire, how to not become the empire that we so hate. The challenge is amazing. So I think you probably know this, but I love this story. Um, medieval map makers had a very limited knowledge of distant lands and of the earth and everything. You know, for so long, the earth was believed to be flat. And the map makers, uh, at the edges of the map, the far edges of the map, would write these words, hic sunt dracones. Here be dragons. One map from 1430 has this text written above a ferocious creature. Here also are huge men having horns four feet long. And there are serpents also of such magnitude that they can eat an ox whole. I mean, don't you just love that? But we know dragons in uncharted waters, don't we? One million people in the United States have died of COVID. Yet another mass shooting in Buffalo, New York. Ten people killed, three others injured, a white male shooter captured, all bent on killing blacks. A manifesto believed to have been posted online by the gunman emerged, riddled with race, racist anti-immigrant views that claimed white Americans were at risk of being replaced by people of color. We know dragons. Oh, yeah. We know all about dragons. Our country racked by fundamentalist nationalistic movements that threaten our democracy and divide our communities of faith. Our world in the midst of war and rumors of war. The book of the Revelation of John from which our first reading comes talks of dragons, the beast of Rome, intent on using power to destroy in order to meet its ends. Does that sound familiar somehow? Wars that destroy lives, cultures, climates. Wars that seek to destroy the view of the common good, the well-being of all people, the understanding of the radical concept of self-governance. Oh yes, we know dragons, personal struggles in our own lives with health, with family, with relationships, with life, with just life in a world where it feels like the phrase for the common good is being lost. So let's get back to Revelation, shall we? Near the end of the letter, all 
metaphor of violence ends. We heard in our lesson today, first lesson. And what we hear may be, well, some of the most beautiful words in Scripture. I again turn to Diana Butler Bass, who writes, the final metaphor, that of the bride, offers a genuine corrective to all the violence of empire. The holy city, the new Jerusalem, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, will descend the new Jerusalem. The conquering warrior Christ is gone. Instead, a feminine metaphor of the reign of God. We are welcomed into a relationship that is intimate and imminent and joyful. God is with us. God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. This is the longed-for radiance of the kingdom of God. kingdom of God that overcomes pain and the death of empire with light and love, right? You know, it sounds a lot like that just unbelievably beautiful scripture from the song of songs. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death, passion fierce as the grave. This is the nature of God's kingdom. Okay, so here's the deal. Jesus knew the Song of Songs, probably by heart. Jesus knew the nature of God's kingdom. Jesus knew the truth of the kingdom of God being one of sacrificial agape love for the common good of all God's children. So it may feel like a bit of a leap to find ourselves back here in the middle of the Gospel of John on this fifth Sunday of Easter. But in today's scripture, Jesus is preparing for what is getting ready to happen. Jesus will ascend and the Spirit will come. Maybe you know of the website, 22 Words. Does anybody know that website? very big website. Andrew Piper, who, by the way, is a son of the very um, evangelical, very evangelical John Piper, but who has left the faith multiple times now, decided that he was tired of stories being so long. You couldn't read them. Sometimes when I read the New York Times, I think, oh my gosh, these stories are so long. But he would try to tell a story in 22 words. It, this website sponsors an ongoing challenge of expressing yourself on some matter in 22 words. Now, see if you can do that, because, you know, Twitter gave us, what, 40 characters? And now, 140 characters? But 22 words that you get to define something and tell a story. And there are different categories, like, my life so far is 22 words. When friend... Which friend's character are you and why? 22 words. You have to answer each one with 22 words. So consider our gospel text reading for today. In these few verses that end at the end of John 13, Jesus offers a similar challenge. His challenge, however, runs 32 words. For in these 32 words, he leaves his followers, including us, 
with a clear summary of the Christian life. Love one another, just as I have loved you, you should also love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love each other. 32 words. Now, what gives Jesus' statement power is not only its brevity, but its focus. It's the one thing Jesus wants us to remember. Not to evangelize somebody, not to keep each other accountable, not to give more money to the church, not to resist temptation, not to make Jesus proud, not any other of the hundreds of things we regularly hear lifted up as the pinnacle and priority of the Christian life, but rather this, love one another. Do you get this? Do you get this? Do you really get this? On the eve of his crucifixion, Jesus tells us to love, gives us a way to be in the world. In his departing instructions, he boils it all down to these 32 words that he himself has just embodied by washing the feet of his disciples. He has just shown them exactly what he means. So I want you to do something for me. Get your worship guide out if you're here. Go online to BibleGateway.com and go to the scripture of John 13, 34, and 35. Now go to, that, go to the last two sentences in John 13, 34, and 35 where it starts, love one another. Okay? Underline those last words. Underline them. And if you're online, print them out. And when you get home, print them out. Memorize them. Post them on your bathroom mirror. Write them on your heart. We are Easter people and we live in a Good Friday world, but we have options other than further violence when the dragons stir up hate between us. At a time when we live under dark, darkened skies and a devastated earth, we can join God in ushering a new heaven and a new earth here. And now, we are the presence of God, of Jesus, of the Spirit, helping to wipe away the tears of our world. Well, so this week, I walked Sydney out. Uh, she was going, on Thursday night, she was going to dinner with her grandfather, and so I walked them out. And as, they, as we got out on the front porch, uh, I could hear a cat meowing. So... I couldn't see it, so they left. I went back inside. Later, I came back out. I still heard the cat meowing. It was a distressed meowing. That's not very good, but. <laughs> so I dug around in the shrubs, and I found it lying there. And I thought, oh, my, this cat is dying. I didn't know what to do, so I went back in. And then walked back out, and it wasn't meowing, but as I got close and dug under the shrubs, it started meowing again. And so I went back in and got a box and some old towels and put towels in the box, and I um, went and got some rubber latex gloves on, and, and I went out and picked up the cat. It was light as a feather. It was so thin, just emaciated, bones. I could see its bones. And I put it in the box, and I covered it up, and I took it and put it on our um, grill out there on one of the wings of the grill so no other animals could get it. And then I thought, well, 
can't just leave it here. So I started to pet it and talk to it. And it quieted down with shallow breathing. In the morning it had died. And we didn't know what to do with it. And so it turns out you can call 311 and they will come up, come and pick deceased animals up. It just occurred to me that no, no creature of God should die alone. Uh, no creature of God should die without somebody comforting it. Reverend Molly Basket, lead pastor at First Church Berkeley, United Church of Christ in California, wrote about a similar situation with her daughter, seven-year-old daughter, who um, found a little bird that had been blown out of the nest. Um, Basket wrote, spring is fragile. It's not safe and strong like the root of summer. Spring blabs on and on about its new life, this and that new life. But let's tell the truth. Things that are trying to get born or give birth in the spring don't always survive. Perhaps it's as simple as this. Someone to notice, lift you up gently, and believe that you will live until you do. Jesus said, I give you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. So you must also love each other. This is how everyone will know that you are my disciples when you love each other, to which we might add. When you love all of God's creatures in all of God's creation. I know that's more than 32 words. <laughs> Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen.